It's great to welcome you again uh, this morning to our service. This, this room was completely transformed overnight because yesterday was our fifth annual uh, Joy Prom. We had over uh, 300 guests um, here, over 400 volunteers, many of you. A very exciting day to be able to, uh, to care for and love the special needs community and uh, to demonstrate to them in a very tangible, very physical way uh, the love of Christ. And, and uh, so thank you for those of you that participated uh, not only in the Joy Prom, but also getting this thing turned back into an auditorium. And so it's great to be together today. Well, Easter uh, was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, on April 1st, by the way, this year, uh, we, we saw then that um, after his resurrection that Jesus appeared to many people. Remember that? Mary Magdalene first, Peter and James, the two on the road to Emmaus, uh, to his 12 disciples, minus Judas, uh, many times, to 500 uh, brothers at, at one time. Uh, there could be no doubting nor denying that he was alive. For 40 days, he appeared. But on that 40th day, uh, think of it as May 10th, that would be 40 days after April 1st, on, on that day, Jesus took his disciples to the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is just to the east of, uh, of Jerusalem, up the hill from the Garden of Gethsemane. They went to the top of the mountain, and the disciples are excited. They ask him, is it time? Are you going to reveal yourself to the world and, and set up your kingdom? Is it time, Jesus? I get that question, don't you? Haven't you ever thought, you know, today would be a really good day for you to come, Jesus. I mean, we live in a, in a broken world. Can, can, you come and, can you come and fix it? Well, you remember Jesus said, it is not for you to know the time, which is rather interesting. I saw in a headline article on a website, I think it was this week, that a biblical numerologist has discerned that the rapture is going to take place on April 23rd. You might want to write that down. It is, however, not for you to know the time set, for my, uh, set by my Father. But you will receive power, he said, when the Holy Spirit comes. You'll be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends uh, of the earth, all, all the way to Boone, North Carolina. In, in Matthew, as we saw just a moment ago, he said, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which we've just done. Then, after he said those things on the top of uh, uh, the Mount of Olives, Luke says that he was lifted up right before their very eyes. He ascended uh, into heaven. And, and we've been waiting for his return ever since, haven't we? <laughs> Again, have you ever thought today would be a, a, a really good day? What's he been doing? Well, I mean, we know he's sat down at the right hand of his father, his rightful place of, uh, of glory and honor, and that he received a name that is above every name, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, he has been ruling and reigning, building his church just as he promised as the head of the church. We also know that he has been preparing a place for us, right? I mean, he told the disciples um, the night before his crucifixion, I'm going to uh, prepare a place for you, and if I do that, rest assured, I will come back to get you, that where I am, there you can be also. So, so we've been waiting, haven't we? And, and waiting. And, ju and just like the readers of Hebrews, 
This waiting has not always been easy. Jesus even said, if they hated me, if they opposed me, if they persecuted me, if they kill me, they will do to you also, and they have. That's it? We we just suffer and wait and wait some more and wonder, is it today? Jesus doing anything else? Is there anything else that we can do as we wait? I mean, I know we get this witnesses thing, but but is there more that he is doing? Is there more that we can be doing in the midst of, let's just be real honest, our suffering, our persecution and opposition, which is rising in our country, temptation, trouble, trials, ever had any of those? Doubt, sickness, death. Said more basically, perhaps, is this all worth it? Is there any help for what we're facing? Yes, there is. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and following say, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, here's what we can do. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This very passage has encouraged the church for 2,000 years. I would suggest even more so uh, when we understand it in its context. The, the, the Jewish readers of Hebrews were, uh, like believers through the centuries, suffering for their faith. They had suffered great loss, lo- loss of credibility, loss of property, loss of their homes, loss of freedom. They were now facing loss of life through martyrdom. So, so great was their suffering that some had quit and returned to Judaism. Others were considering doing the same. And so the author writes to both encourage and to warn them. The encouragement comes primarily in the form of this. Jesus is greater. Why would you leave? Jesus is greater than anything that Judaism has to offer, or for that matter, any other world religion. Are you checking things out? Check things out. You'll find Jesus is greater. As the Son of God, He's greater than the angels. His covenant is greater than the one, that they, me- the, uh, the one they mediated, the old covenant. He, he's greater than Moses. Moses, you see, was a servant in the house, the Son. Jesus is the, is the Son over the house. Jesus is greater than Joshua. Joshua led them into the land of promise, merely a type of, of the rest that the New Testament Joshua, the one named Jesus, brought. Further... Jesus is greater than, than, than any claims made in any other world religion. After all, as we saw, their founders are still dead and buried. Jesus, the founder of the Christian faith, is undoubtedly, undeniably alive. But he's more than alive. I want you to understand this morning that he is caring for his followers. When he told his disciples that he was returning to heaven, he also told them that he would send another just like him to be with them, another 
depending on your translation, another counselor, another comforter, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. He told them on the Mount of Olives, right before he ascended before their very eyes, to wait um, until they received power. And they did wait for 10 days, and the Holy Spirit came. He promised that he would be with them through his spirit to the very end of the age. These are promises that we can trust. Say, but I'm really, I'm really struggling. I'm really suffering. Welcome to the Christian life. You see, Paul tells us these amazing words in Romans chapter 8. Now, you should know that Romans 8 was written as an encouragement to believers who were suffering, struggling in, in this present life. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There you go. We're waiting again for, for future glory. Text goes on, verse 23. Not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, remember he came 10 days after the ascension, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Yep, I get that part of the verse. I've been struggling, groaning, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. There we have it again, waiting. Is that it? Are we just left to fend for ourselves? Verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself, listen, listen, intercedes for us. This is incredibly good news. As we are suffering, waiting patiently and eagerly, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, intercedes with the Father for us. You are not left alone. No matter what you're facing today, you're, you're not facing it alone. But that's not all. Verse 34, this is unbelievable. Jesus, is He who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who, was at, who ascended, who is at the right hand of the Father, who also intercedes for us. My brothers and sisters, understand that the Spirit and the Son, two members of the Trinity, are interceding for you right now, whatever it is you're facing with the Father, such that the next verse, who will separate us from the love of Christ? What's the answer? Nothing. Through a long list, Paul says there is nothing that will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, so I want you to get this. Yes, Jesus ascended to heaven. That's orthodox. Yes, he is seated at the right hand of God. We get that. Yes, he is ruling and reigning, building his church, just like he said. Yes, he is preparing a place for us. Yes, he will come again and receive us to be with him as we wait and wait some more. In the meantime, we... Eagerly, I'm not so sure about the patiently part, wait for his return as we suffer. But also, yes, do not miss this. This is not all that Jesus is doing right now. He is interceding for us. It seems to me that he would be rather busy running the universe. And yet he is interceding for you right now. I, don't, I have no idea what that looks like. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. I mean, does he just look up every once in a while and say, uh, Father Jenny could use our attention right now? I, it's not like the Father doesn't know. <coughs> so perhaps it's more like this. Jenny is one for whom I died 
My sister, remember, he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. So, so Father, let's care for her. There is a sense, however it is happening, there is a sense in which Jesus is praying to the Father for you in your circumstance right now that we would persevere in the midst of great challenge, whatever your challenge is. Does that encourage you? Jesus knows. He's interceding. He prayed for us the night before his crucifixion. He's getting ready to face the cross. In in a few moments, he's going to be in the garden praying, "If if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But he stops to pray for you. But now I come to you. This is Jesus speaking to the Father. I come to you. These things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. That's encouraging. Because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I didn't ask that you take them out of the world. I sure wish you would. But to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify, set them apart in truth. What truth? He tells us, your word is truth. That's why we spend so much time in his word on Sunday mornings, to sanctify us, to set us apart. As you have sent me into the, wor- as you sent me into the world, so I also send them around the world. For their sakes I sanctify, set myself apart, that they themselves also may be sanctified by the truth of your word. I do not ask on behalf of these 12, he was praying for them, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Jesus prayed for you the night before his crucifixion. He prayed for you, you in mind. Do you understand that he is also interceding for you right now? such that the, in, the invitation and promise of Hebrews chapter 4 is indeed one of the most precious in Scripture. He is, after all, in closest proximity to the Father at His right hand. He hears your prayers. He knows what you're facing. He knows what you're going through, and He is interceding for you. By the way, with much greater wisdom and insight than you, how much of the time do we pray for things that we do not need or would not be best for us? He interprets that for us. (laughs) I know that they're asking for a big bag of candy right before dinner. That's not best. Let's look at this text for just a few moments and we'll end our time in prayer, going to the throne of grace. Here's the outline. Our great high priest, our sympathetic high priest, and our, don't miss this, our approachable high priest. It's really quite straightforward, which is, Great for Hebrews. Starting with our great high priest. He begins with that word therefore, which we know is a conjunction pointing back to what he has said before. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, when did he refer to Jesus as a high priest? Back in chapter 2, verse 17, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation or atonement, turning away God's wrath for the sins of the people. So Jesus became a man at the incarnation, taking on human flesh so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in order to make propitiation for the people. 
He had to be made a man so that he might represent us to God and God to us. Who, who better, in fact, I would go further, the only one who could do that is Jesus, the God-man. He was made man so he might be a faithful high priest. So, we have a great high priest. We'll come back to that in a moment. Who has passed through the heavens. Stop right there. Jesus did that at his ascension, remember, from the Mount of Olives. He was taken up, a cloud received him and, or, or hid him from their sight. That, that, you know that story. This is where the, the, the guys are, are standing there kind of gazing up into heaven. The angels appear and say, guys, what are you doing? He, he told you he's going to come back, but in the meantime, be about the work that he gave you to do. And so they did. So that the, this gospel of the kingdom has been reaching around the world, even to the United States of America, even to the mountains of North Carolina. Hallelujah. Now, we see Jesus continued as he was hidden from their sight in the cloud, continued through the cloud, through the heavens. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about being taken to the third heaven. The, the Jews thought of three heavens or seven or 12, depending on who you read. Uh, the, the first being our sky, the second being our atmosphere, the second being space, and the third being beyond that, the place where God resides. So here we is, he is saying that Jesus ascended through the heavens, that the idea is to the very presence of God, where he sat down at the right hand uh, of God, where he sits as our great high priest interceding for us. Again, the only place uh, that, that talks about, in the New Testament, that talks about a great high priest. Now, let, now, let's talk about this high priest. If you are at all familiar with the Old Testament, you know that one of the 12 tribes of Israel was the tribe of, of Levi. They, they were the tribe of priests who, who would offer sacrifices, serve in the tabernacle, later in the temple. They made sure things like the incense was in place, the, the showbread was prepared, things like that. But, but, it, but again, the most important thing they did was to offer sacrifices for the people. But there was one and only one high priest. You'll remember that Aaron was um, the first and that he and his descendants uh, were the highest of the priests, that is, the high priest. He would wear a, a, an ephod upon which were those uh, 12 stones right there on his chest engraved with the 12 tribes of Israel. On his shoulders were the Urim and Thummim uh, from which he would inquire of, uh, of the Lord. Not sure exactly how that happened. But undoubtedly, one of the greatest duties of the high priest fell on Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. On that day, don't miss it, on that day only, he would enter into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. He entered through a thick curtain. The Scripture calls it a veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. In that Holy of Holies sat a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. In the box, among other things, don't miss this, among other things were the two tablets of stone upon which God had written the Ten Commandments from which the other commandments um, came. Over the box was a golden lid that was called the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat were two cherubim with wings stretching, golden cherubim, with wings stretching from one side of the room to the other. And there above that mercy seat, that golden lid, God was thought to dwell with His people. There, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest and only the high priest would sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice covering the mercy seat 
in atonement for the people. Don't miss the symbolism. You see, the blood would stand between God, who, who dwelt above the mercy seat, and the box which contained the Ten Commandments. The blood would stand between God and the law that had been broken. A few other things to note. The high priest would not only be offering a sacrifice uh, for the people, but for his own sins. He was a sinner. And the the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement was offered unendingly. Day, year after year after year after year, those sins were rolled forward until they were finally rolled on Christ. Christ. Finally, the priest wore bells around the bottom of his robe. When he went into the Holy of Holies, he did so with a rope tied around his waist. As those outside could hear the bells, they knew that he was alive and his sacrifice was being accepted. If the bells ceased ringing, they knew he was dead and they would drag his dead corpse out. The veil, that thick curtain, separated people like you and me from the presence of God. You see, only one entered, and that once a year. And now the author of Hebrew tells us, since we have a great high priest, again, the only place in the New Testament that refers to a great high priest, one who has passed through not the veil, but through the heavens. You see, the veil of the temple had been torn in two when Jesus hung on the cross, when he cried out, it is finished, from the top to the bottom torn into signaling access to the very presence of God. There was no longer a barrier that that would keep you out, that said you are not holy enough. Access to the Father has been granted you. I I know we're used to that. I know that's kind of old news. I mean, yeah, I I I can pray whenever I want. So I do right before I eat. I, I can talk to him when I'm driving. Do you understand the privilege that you have to enter into the very presence of God when the high priest could only do it once a year. Jesus passed through, not a physical veil, but through the heavens in the presence of His Father where He sat down and opened the way for us. You see, Jesus is the very Son of God, and His sacrifice was perfect. It was complete. Never ever to be offered again. With these verses, the author transitions to the third major section of the book that will extend all the way through through the middle of chapter 10. The, The theme will be Jesus as our great high priest. You see, not only is Jesus greater than angels, not only is he greater than Moses, not only is he greater than Joshua, he is greater than Aaron. He's greater than the Levitical system. He's greater than every sacrifice that's ever offered. He's greater than any um, high priest that ever lived. He is, after all, the great high priest. So, as a result, let us hold fast our confession. Confession. Our confession of faith, of Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, who died and was raised again the the third day to take away the sin of the world. So the author is saying, "You, you you cannot go back to Judaism. You can't go back to the Old Covenant. There's nothing there. All those high priests... All of those sacrifices, 
uh, even the temple, even the Holy of Holies, simply types pointing to their ultimate fulfillment in Christ in the new covenant. So he says, brothers and sisters, hold fast your confession of faith. Believe in the ultimate satisfaction of your sins through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Hold fast and faithful to the gospel. There is nothing else. Because not only is Jesus the Son of God, our great high priest, as the author will make clear in chapters to come, but he is also our sympathetic high priest, or, uh, sympathetic high priest, verse 15.2. Like last week, I've already preached most of the message. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without Sin. This, Hebrews 2 told us, was one reason Jesus took on human flesh so that He could experience what we experienced and by that become a faithful and merciful high priest for His people. And since He was tempted in that which He suffered, He also is able to come to the aid of those who are similarly tempted. Now, in that particular context, in chapter 2, the author was writing to people tempted to quit and return to Judaism because of their suffering, because of their suffering, because we were reminded then that Jesus, too, was tempted to quit, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, He prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Let me not drink the cup of Your wrath. Chapter 5 will tell us that with loud cries and, and tears, Jesus sought the one who was able to save him from death. But remember that he finished all of that praying in the Garden of Gethsemane with the words, not my will, but yours be done. And further, he suffered the temptation to its fullest degree because when he was tempted, he never quit. He never gave in. He never sinned. So he knows what you're going through. When you're thinking about throwing in the towel, saying, I'm not sure this Christian faith thing is worth it. He knows what you're going through. But here in chapter 4, the author seems to broaden the application just a bit. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. That's actually a double negative, which is permissible in the Greek for emphasis, meaning we do have a high priest who can sympathize emphatically so with what? Our weaknesses? A weakness to give in, to quit? Certainly so. But notice, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in all things, not just the temptation to quit, in all things as we are, yet without sin. Not just the temptation to quit. Every kind of temptation. It's not that Jesus faced every specific temptation that you have faced, but every kind of temptation most assuredly, and he did so successfully. Think of his temptation in the wilderness. When, when, the, when Satan tempted and turned the, 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 the rocks into bread and, or, or to fall down and, and, and worship him or to cast himself from the pinnacle of the temple. Those, First John says, are, are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He was tempted in every way as we are, whatever it is that you're facing right now, whatever it is you faced last night, by the way, or yesterday, or that you'll face tomorrow. He faced it. As we talked about a few weeks ago, that means Jesus not only faced every temptation you have faced, but he also faced it again to the fullest degree. You see, when we give in to temptation and sin, we don't face it to the fullest degree. But since he never sinned, 
he did. No one is better suited to understand where you are than he. He never sinned. If he, did, if he had sinned, he would not have been the great high priest, nor would he have been the perfect sacrifice. But he, he did face it to the fullest degree, such that he is able to sympathize, indeed empathize, with your temptations and your weaknesses. Here's the truth. He knows. He understands, having faced them himself. Therefore, point three, because he is our great high priest, transcendent, seated at the Father's right hand, because he is our sympathetic high priest, eminent, right here with us, he understands. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Please remember that for centuries, only the high priest drew near. Only, only the high priest. Once a year. And he drew near with fear and tre trembling. Bells around his robes. Offering, uh, I mean a rope around his waist. Offering a sacrifice for his own sins and the sins uh, of the people. But only he drew near. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever prayed to God and wondered if he would strike you dead? Why not? Because of Jesus. You were invited to draw near, not in fear, but with joy-filled confidence. The word could be translated boldness. That doesn't mean, by the way, with arrogance. It, it, it means that because of the finished work of Christ, we have actual access to confident, joyful, humble access to God. Now, when you think of God and you think of him sitting on a throne, what comes to mind? Maybe you think of the great white throne, Revelation chapter 20. I often tell people, if you die and the next thing you see is a great white throne, I mean great white throne, that is not a good thing. It's a throne of judgment. Perhaps you think of Isaiah or John's vision, seated in a throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. And when Isaiah saw that vision, he rightfully cried out, woe is me for I am undone. I, I live in the midst of a people who are broken and undone. It was an awesome sight and it, it revealed his own sinfulness, his own unworthiness to stand in God's presence. But now, brothers and sisters, we have been invited to approach that very throne with confidence because Jesus has opened the way. And I want you to know that it's not a throne of judgment, not for you. It is a throne of grace. Grace speaks of getting what we do not deserve, but we get because we have been accepted by Jesus. We have received grace upon grace. How do you view the presence of God, His throne? Perhaps you've had an earthly father who was less than kind, and you've transferred those and less than loving, and you've transferred those feelings to your heavenly Father. Don't do it. Do we go with fear and trembling? We need not. We go as His children to a throne of grace to receive mercy, that is forgiveness and relief from the consequences of past sins, to find grace, that is uh, to, to receive strength in the Christian life, in the present and in the future, in time of need. Whatever your need is right now, he stands ready to dispense grace. When do we approach his throne? <laughs> he says in time of need, probably more often than we think. 
When are you not in need? How often do we think, I've got this, I can handle this? How much better would it be if we would realize that we need God in His mercy and grace every moment of every day? That's why Paul says we pray without ceasing. So we approach His throne of grace. My wife gave me a book this week to read entitled, From Weakness to Strength. To be clear, it is not a book telling you how to go from being a weak person to a strong person. It is rather a book written to tell you how to find strength in your weakness. The author quotes an old hymn at the end of the first chapter. I close with these words. Whatever my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. Do you hear that? Whatever you're facing, you are not forsaken. He knows. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him I leave it all. He holds me that I shall not fall. This is glorious news. You, I don't think, can preach teach on a text about approaching the throne of grace without inviting people to do that. Amen. And so we're going to do that. I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and come. They're standing outside there. They might hear me eventually. Uh, but um, uh, elders and their wives, I've been put on notice. I've asked them to come and to stand in the front. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet if you would right now. We've intentionally designed the, the end of this service to go this way. Elders and wives are going to come and stand, and maybe you just need to approach the throne of grace. You can do it right where you are. You don't have to come. But if you want to, we stand ready to pray with and for you. We would love, we would love to pray to God through Jesus for you for whatever it is you're facing right now. And so we're going to sing a song that in, this is a song of invitation we invite you, whatever your need is, we invite you to come and let us pray with and for you. Or maybe you just want to stay and sing and, and, and celebrate God's goodness. Maybe you just want to, to pray right where you are. You can do that as well. Then after we sing that song, we are going to hold fast our confession. How are we going to do that? Confessions, creeds rather, were confessions of faith that were written to help put together, if you will, to help... Uh, 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 synthesize our faith. The Apostles' Creed is the oldest. We're going to recite the Apostles' Creed together and remind us what we believe. We're going to hold fast our confession. And then we're going to sing one final song before the throne of God above. And as we sing that song, I want you to think, I can actually stand before God's throne because my name is written on His hand. So, Father, whatever people's needs are right now, I pray that you would meet them in very meaningful and very special ways, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Whatever your need is, please let us pray with and for you.